Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. I do want to say a special welcome to everyone here, as well as I know we have a number who are online right now for various um, health issues and things of that nature, and COVID continues to do what COVID does and mess up all of our fun. Uh, So for everyone online, welcome. For everyone here, welcome. Uh, We are now in the third week of our series um, called the GSC Scoreboard, and the idea is what does it look like to have both a healthy personal relationship with Jesus and walk with Christ, and what does that look like then for us as a church to do that together? Uh, And this week we are on Gracious Community, and good night if this wasn't the right week to talk about a gracious community. Um, when there's been so much chaos, so much blame, so much infighting, so much anger, uh, so much disorder in this community, in this country that we love, um, what an opportune moment. What an opportune moment for the church to be a counter culture when the culture cannot figure out its right hand from its left. Um, When I was in my first ministry position just out of college, Um, I was in Atlanta, the big city, and it was just at that time, about 15 years ago, when craft coffee and craft everything was getting really popular and really in vogue. And, you know, because there was kind of a push at that time against the big franchises. There was a push against big Walmart. There was a push against big McDonald's. There was a push against big Starbucks, which I still love. And in its place was all of these sort of smaller, sustainable businesses that were local. We still have kind of today that shop local idea that happens once a year. And um, so the first ever that I knew anything about craft coffee came from this company, aptly named Counter Culture Coffee. And they had a brew house in downtown Atlanta, and a friend of mine was super into coffee and whatever, and so he invites me to go to this thing they call a cupping event. And I'm still not exactly sure what a cupping event is, but so you go, and it's this trendy, fancy building, and you walk in, and there's these, um, you know, all these cool people surrounding these very tiny cups of coffee with little bitty spoons next to it. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take the spoon and dip the coffee out and slurp the coffee. And through doing that, in some way, you're supposed to be able to have these tasting notes that sort of come out and, and you know, are some sort of magical experience. I just thought it was super weird. And so I left, and that was 15 years ago. At the time... I thought, I'm not sure what this is. I don't know what cupping is. I just thought coffee was either Starbucks or Maxwell House. I'm kind of okay with either of those. So I come back, and here we are 15 years later, and this past Christmas, the fancy coffee bug finally got me. 
I got this pour over thing and I got these fancy coffee beans and you put the two together and sure enough, it actually, there's some good coffee out there. What started out as something that was so weird and countercultural to what I was aware of now is something that I absolutely love. That was a goofy story to make a non-goofy point. If anything, what is countercultural right now is grace. What is, what is countercultural in our world today is love, not hate, is grace, not anger. And so to begin to approach a community like that, we have to, we have to both have fuel for it and we have to have a foundation. What we're going to do today is try to find both of those things in the book of Galatians, particularly the last two chapters. Because the gospel, if nothing else, is foolish. Paul says as much. He says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is life to those who believe. And so there should be a sense of what we do in church. Actually, my friend Stan, who we just prayed for, I met with him this past week and he's adopted a new motto. And that motto is, let's make church weird again. There should be something counter-cultural to the church, not just trying to do everything we can to squeak under the radar in hopes that we might bait and switch someone into the message of Jesus, but there should be something that is totally different than the way that the world works. And so, Galatians 5 gives us some marching orders and a bit of a framework to think through here today. Uh, so we're going to read just four verses. So Galatians 5, 13 through 15, and Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2. You can read along with me. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now jump down to verse 6. I'm sorry, chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask that in these next few moments that we have together, that your word would do its work. We know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that it pierces. I pray that it would pierce. That it would pierce us in the ways that we need to be cut right now. That we need to be cut away from our old ways, that we need to be cut away from our old patterns of thinking, that we need to be cut away from the flesh. And would you in its place heal us? Would you come and in this community, would you make us gracious? We can only do that by your power. We can only do that with your grace as our foundation and our very fuel. And so would you come? Would you convince us of your gracious eye towards us so that we could have the same for somebody else. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what you'll see in this passage is two dynamics going on, and they're one and the same as you contrast them. To elevate self 
according to Galatians 5 and 6, is to divide a community. When the self gets elevated, community begins to divide, and we don't need many examples to see that as the truth today. But when you lower yourself, community can begin to unite. John Stott, uh, in his work, Obeying Christ in a Changing World, and keep in mind, this was 1977. Similar times, maybe in the 60s and 70s, to what we're going through today. He says this, Instead of always being one of the chief bastions of the social status quo, the church is to develop a Christian counterculture with its own distinctive goals, values, standards, and lifestyle. A realistic alternative to the contemporary technocracy, which is marked by materialism, self-centeredness, and greed. Christ's call to obedience is a call to be different, not conformist. Such church, joyful, obedient, loving, and free, what great adjectives, will do more than please God. It will attract the world. It is when the church evidently is the church and is living a supernatural life of love by the power of the Holy Spirit that the world will believe. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even this community here today can be a part of the body of Christ's work across our city and across our state, across this country and across this world that would be in such, acting in such a way that it would cause people to sit back and go, huh, the way they live doesn't make sense to me. And then as Peter says, when that question comes up, you better be ready with a response. So let's think for a minute about the, since we're just dropping into the middle of Galatians, let's set a little bit of a context. Galatians started out as one of these churches, as one of these beautiful community type of churches that was, was amazed by the, or the culture around them was amazed with the amount of unity that they had. Paul planted this thing, so you know it had to be awesome. As he plants it, he brings Jewish believers and Gentile believers together, and they begin to experience some of this freedom that he reminds them, don't forget, you once had this. You're starting to slip. You're starting to lose it. What are they doing? How are they losing it? What exactly is going on? As I said, there's a mix of Gentile and Jewish believers, meaning there's a mix of ethnicities, there is a mix, a mix of social classes, there is a mix of races, there is a mix of people all in the same place. And they had begun to figure out what it looked like to actually live together, to do life together, to love each other in countercultural ways. But Paul leaves, and who comes in but some false teachers? And these false teachers say that that Paul guy, he wasn't what he said he was. You shouldn't listen to him. He's not even following the real true religion anyways. He's not really honoring Yahweh. Here's what really honors Yahweh. These were called the Judaizers because they wanted to bring back the Jewish law and bring it to bear on New Testament believers. And so they said, here's what you must do. You must follow the Old Testament law, especially you must be circumcised. Because what? Circumcision is the mark that you're in with God. But 
there's a couple of things that they had already confused and that may seem far away, but are also very true to form in the way that we can think today. So let's talk about them in their day and age, and then we'll talk about them in ours. First, to say that everyone, in order to be a part of the church, in order to be a part of this community, must be circumcised, that means there is one ethnicity, Jewish ethnicity, that is being raised above all others, and everyone must become a Jew. Now, if you remember, Paul said the exact opposite to that. He said, to the Jew, I became a Jew, but to the uncircumcised, I became like one who is uncircumcised. To one who is outside the law, I became like one who is outside the law. To someone inside the law, I became like someone inside the law. I became all things to all people that I might save some. And so Paul seems to completely wipe the slate clean that there is any sort of ethnocentric, ethnocentricity to Christianity. Every other religion, Christianity is the only religion that is not ethnocentric. Every other religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Islam, every one of these is ethnocentric. And to be in with them, you must become like them. Christianity is the only religion that comes into a particular culture and both retains what is good and redeems what needs to be redeemed in any culture. And a church in Latin America will look different than a church here, will look different than a church in Africa, will look different than a church in Asia, all with the similar foundation of Christ the Lord, but looking completely different in the form and the function. And that's what's beautiful about our Christ. He does not say that we all must be like one, but instead he is one that says, every person is made in my image, has my value, and has certain things about it that only they can image. So certain ethnicities, by saying everyone must be circumcised, are being elevated while everyone else must become like them. Secondly, they've completely misunderstood what circumcision was about in the first place. So here's a little timeline. If you remember all the way back to Abraham, Genesis. Uh, if you began a Bible reading plan in Genesis in the first of the year, you're almost to Abraham. Oh, what's today? The 10th. You're almost to Abraham. Um, if you remember, Genesis 15 is when Abraham believes God, trusts him by faith, and is saved. Genesis 17, two chapters later, is when Abraham is given the sign of circumcision. And so in the same way that baptism, anytime we stand up here and baptize someone, in the same way that baptism is only a sign and a pointer to the faith and the inner transformation that has already begun in that person through faith in Christ, in the same way, circumcision was doing the same thing. It was just a pointer to, a sign to, what hopefully would be an inward reality. Deuteronomy reminds the, the people of Israel that they were to not only circumcise their flesh but actually circumcise their hearts that they should be so pure so set apart from the culture that there would be a, a purity about them it's not just a sign it's about the inward reality and so they had circumcision completely wrong on two different fronts um, I, I seem to have a book for every sermon in this series and so here's the book for today. Um, so this is by a guy named Paul Miller. 
um, who has written a, another book that is especially uh, helpful and famous called A Praying Life. And I'll be telling more about that book in a little bit with a seminar we have coming up. Um, but this book, J-Curve, is his latest, and it's fantastic. Just the last little section on community is worth the price of admission. Here's what, how he describes what's going on with Paul here. He, he describes this as the smell line. And that might sound kind of odd, so let me, let me explain. It was hard for Jews and Gentiles to be around each other. And there were many reasons for that. There were the ethnic region, reasons. There were the fact that the, the Jews were the clean ones. Both physically, they had washing rituals. They, they only ate certain animals and did not eat other animals. They were the clean upper crust ones. And then all these Gentiles, they were eating meat sacrificed to idols and they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff and they were touching whatever and they weren't using hand sanitizer and you couldn't be, they didn't wear a mask, you couldn't be anywhere around them. But what Paul is saying is there is a way for both of those as polar opposite as they are, as polar opposite as you may be from someone else also sitting in this same room. Jesus has made a way for us to be unified. So the smell line. If, if you're aware of the culture in the ancient Near East at the time, uh, in the same way when Jesus is talking about washing people's feet, we tend to have a conception of what washing someone's feet is when they've bathed every day. We have a different conception of washing someone's feet when they only bathe once a month or maybe never and mostly wear sandals and walk through whatever animal stuff has been dropped along the way in their dirt roads. Most people, especially of that lower class, of that lower caste, of that Gentile, uh, especially the lower income of those people, they washed maybe once a month, maybe never. And so at a certain point, there was actually a level of social interaction that you could not cross without just having to be around someone who literally smelled. And so Paul Miller calls this the smell line. Now, we don't have that problem. We don't have, for the most part, there are a few, maybe some as you come upon a homeless person walking down the, the street, or you, you come across someone who for some reason, you know, is just out in the yard and, and just mowed and is kind of stanky from that. But normally, we're not around that much, you know, body odor in most of our uh, social circles today. But here's what we are around. We're around all kinds of things that we look at and go, oof. What, what causes you to turn up your nose at something and go, oh, no. Yuck. P-U. Right? Whether it's those stinking liberals, or it's those rotten Trumpsters, or it's that filthy poor. They should stay over there. Or maybe it's those rich. Oh, all they do is just spend it all on themselves and they eat all their rich food and they drive all their fancy cars. What type of person makes you go, ugh? What would happen if that type of person walked through the door? What would happen? Now, again, most of us are good church people and so we might go up to them and we might shake their hand and we might say, how you doing? What might be going on though in your heart? What type of person most makes you want to turn your nose up? And verse 15 says, those are the people that we are going to be most tempted to bite 
and devour. And those are, that is the moment when community divides. That is the moment when things go, when we come across somebody who we can't stand, that's the real test of love. That's the real test of faith. That's the real test of where does your security and your foundation stand on? Can you go below the smell line to be around someone who is totally other than you? So how does Paul do this? Paul goes from Jew of Jews to a tent maker. Right? He goes from the highest of highs to literally one of the smelly ones. And he begins to work just as hard as any other middle to lower class citizen of that day. And then he says, come on, guys, let's go to church. And he brings all of those friends over to the rich people's houses where they usually had house church. And that's the context where real community got to be worked out. And that's the context for many of us that's the test of real community. Can you be around someone who believes completely counter to what you believe on a whole host of issues? Can you be around someone else who annoys the fire out of you? And can you not only be around them, can you love them? This is the test of true community. Now, why would Paul cross that smell line? Why would Paul go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows that he might win some? Verse 13, this is why. He was free. What does it feel like to be free? What kind of freedom is he describing here? He's describing a kind of freedom where there is no moral there is no eth ethical, there is no ethnic, there is no ceremonial, there is no purification ritual, there is no right prayer to pray or thing to say or place to go or thing to do. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing. There is nothing in your past. There is nothing in your present. There is nothing in your future that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We were called to freedom, to wake up in the morning with a smile on our face because whatever happens in this day, we know where we're headed, we know what he thinks of us, and we know we've got buddies who have our back. That's what the church is meant to be, to constantly remind us of that and to be a walking, talking, living contrast to the way that the rest of the world lives. So the reason Paul lowered himself is because Jesus did the same. The reason Paul lowered himself is because Philippians 2 happened. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, not just any death, even death on a cross. Right? If there is any smell line that is true in the universe, it is the smell line between God and us. If there is any being in the universe that deserves to point up his nose and say, P.U., those people, get away from me. 
It should be our God because he is a consuming fire of pure holiness. And yet in love, he descends and he crosses every reason not and he comes to us. And so verse 13 then, the second half, let's complete that thought. You have been called to freedom, brothers. But don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Every one of us, when we hear, wait, you're saying, you just stood up there and said, nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future that can keep you away from the love of God. That's what you're telling me. So you're telling me I can leave right now and I can go burn down all of Lakeland and I can come back in here the next week and Jesus will still love me. In theory, yeah. Let me not say in theory. Yeah. In Christ, yeah. Now, here's the caution though, because each one of us are so naturally selfish that we hear that and go, woohoo, let's go have a party. When in fact, the very opposite is the point of the freedom that Jesus has given us. The point is that we would not use that as an opportunity for any kind of self-gratification, but it would only be, I'm free. I'm freed up to pick my head up because I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about my future. I don't have to worry about my present. The sovereign God of the universe has my back. And so I'm free to pick my head up and go look at somebody else and say, what do you need? My needs have been taken care of. What do you need? That's the culture of the church. That's how we get there. Through love, serve one another. So before we're tempted to sit on our chief end all day, Paul reminds us again that freedom was not given for our comfort, but for our commission. Paul Miller says it this way, out of this book. He says, sonship is our interior face. Slavery is our exterior face. The feeling of sonship is descending like Jesus into the world of tent makers living with smell. Only then do we display the fragrance of Christ. That's the normal Christian life. Because again, when we hear the word adopt, when we hear the word sonship, when we hear that our father is pleased with us and he smiles over us no matter what we do and we tell each, that to our spouses and we tell that to our friends and we tell that to our children, again, it's very easy to go, ah, oh, well then I'm good. I'm good. I got God's smile. I'm just going to coast between here and the time I get to go home. But there is a motivation, there is a commission that is built into this kind of freedom that is the normal Christian life. If sonship is how we think about our relationship with God in the quiet of our own home and heart, then slavery, servanthood, is the way that we approach this world. And only in that type of a dynamic can you actually find what it means to walk healthily in Christ. And so... Um, you may be aware that through the, the early to mid-1900s, a shift took place in restaurants. And that shift was, it, it started out in the early 1920s, 1930s. You had to wear, you guys would have been in, you had to wear a coat if you were to go to a restaurant, just about any restaurant. And then post-World War II, a new phrase began to be thrown around in restaurants the famous drive-ins of the 1960s said, come as you are, eat in your car. 
And there began to be in this, in the restaurant community, come as you are. You don't need the blazer. You don't need the pleats. Just come on in and you're going to eat. Oh, I just came up with a new one. Someone can trademark that. But to be adopted only later by churches. And, you know, you may have heard many a church slogan that say, come as you are. And that is a great beginning to that statement. Because there is a whole other, we haven't even talked about two verses yet. We're going to go quick. Verses one and two, let's go ahead and throw those up. Because the first step of the gospel is come as you are. The first step of the gospel is come towards the free grace grace that has been given to you in Christ. The second step of the gospel, maybe it would be better to say it this way. The church is the only organization that says come as you are, but don't stay as you are. There is growth that is meant to be a part of our relationship together. That's why next week we're spending the whole time talking about discipling relationships in the church. These are meant to be formative relationships one with another, not just a chance to sort of throw all your dirty laundry on everybody else and go have fun with that. This is a chance to be formed for iron to sharpen iron as one man sharpens another. And so there's two ways that this works out. As Paul says, what does a gracious community actually look like? One, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. So what a gracious community looks like is you're actually telling somebody else, hey, you're a sinner. And here's a specific way that I see that. Now that sounds countercultural. Where else in the world, what other community can you be a part of where you get to be called out as a regular part of your life together? But what does a gracious community look like? It doesn't just look like open arms, but it also looks like a lifting up. It looks like a, for the sake of your health, I want to tell you, I want to tell you where I see you not believing the gospel. I want, to, I want to tell you where I see you not being formed in Christ, but being formed by the world. I want to caution you. I want to be your friend. I want to be your brother. I want to be your sister. That's what a gracious community looks like. A sin-restoring community. Secondly, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So sin-bearing, sin-restoring and burden-bearing. These are the activities of a gracious community. As we continue to live life together, would this be more and more a mark of what we do? Not because we're that great at it, but because this is who Jesus is. And as he calls us to live a life unified with him, then as he has gone down, so shall we. But the whole point of this J-curve book is even as he has gone down, he didn't stay down. He has arisen. And so in every one of our deaths to serve one another, there is resurrection on the other side of that. The first time that I really saw a gracious community in action was my third year of, uh, of my time at the University of Georgia and my first year as a Christian. I was brought into um, this college ministry that took me in, that welcomed me with open arms, I, was, I knew nothing about nothing about the Christian life. I knew nothing about nothing about the Bible. I was not living as becomes a follower of Christ because I didn't know what that meant. And I 
I walked in to the Wesley Foundation and I was befriended by this guy named Justin who then brought me to this little small group that he did once a week. And the four or five of us guys started meeting once a week, praying for each other, reading through some scriptures together. And just little by little, I started to understand the gospel for the first time. Part of the way that I saw it was in the way that that community lived together. I always felt a little bit on the outs, though, because of my past, because I was brand new, because I didn't know anything, because I was kind of coming out of the typical college party guy lifestyle. I felt like there was still something about me that was tarnished and not quite welcome. Until one night, uh, my friend Justin calls me and says, hey, our buddy's downtown, he needs our help. And it was one of the guys in this Bible study. And so he comes and picks me up outside my dorm. We go downtown and, uh, and we show up outside this bar. And it turned out that this buddy of ours who was in this Bible study with us had drank too much and was stuck and so down on himself that he had let this happen again. He was kind of in the upper mezzanine section of this bar. And I have this vivid mental picture of walking into a bar, the, one of the only sober ones there, walking up the stairs, and then us circling around this guy. And we laid hands on him and we prayed for him right there in the bar. That was when I knew this is different. I'm used to the community that's down there. And now this guy, Justin, Jesus, through this guy, Justin, is introducing me to this whole different counterculture, and it feels so much better. I belong here. That's the type of culture that Jesus is building across the world, one that bears burdens, one that restores sin gently and with grace, and one that with open arms welcomes all who would enter. Only in the church, the world cannot figure this out. The world says, be like us or get out. Jesus has said, I became like you, so come in. Would that be our life together? Let's pray. So, Father, I'm amazed by you that your plan would include people like me. that your plan would include the worst of the worst, the least and the lost, that you would cross every barrier imaginable and experience an amazing amount of pain and suffering for the sake of people who didn't even like you that much. But I pray that as we are formed in this truth, that as we more and more believe that the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, that we might see his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We, as we see more and more your grace and truth, would we be grace and truth people? And so would you continue to form our life together? Would Good Shepherd be known as a church that is full of grace and truth? Because Jesus is here. We pray in your name. Amen.